If you have your Bibles, once again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to begin reading in verse 34 this morning. I would also encourage you to find your place in John chapter 13, because there'll be a point in the message where I'll turn your attention to a couple verses in John 13. But we'll begin in Matthew chapter 22, and we'll begin reading in verse 34, and I'll speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, loving God and loving people. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 34. And this is what the Word of God says. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. After stating the first and greatest commandment, Jesus surprised the Pharisees by adding a second commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment, you'll notice, involves the same virtue as the first, namely Love. Jesus declared that the command for genuine love of God is next followed in importance by the command for a genuine love of our neighbor. And as a church family, everything we do should be centered on developing a deeper love for God, which should then translate into a deep love for people. For it is my desire that First Baptist Church would be a place where the one true and living God is worshipped and deeply loved, as well as a place of grace where people are truly loved, welcomed, nurtured, and discipled. Friends, this world needs the love of God expressed through the lives of His people. And in the second part of his answer to the Pharisees, Jesus teaches us what it means to love people. So would you notice with me, first of all, in Matthew chapter 22, verses 39 and 40, the priority of loving people. Jesus said, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In verse 39, Jesus quoted Leviticus 19 and verse 18 and puts the second part of his answer on the same level as the first. And with these words, Jesus is teaching us that there is a distinction between the two commandments But there is not a division 
between the two commandments. In other words, love for God can never be separated for love for neighbor. That in its nature and its scope, in its application and in its implication, the second great commandment flows out of the first. That our love for others flows out of our love for God. And Jesus' command to love your neighbor reminds us that our vertical relationship with God affects our horizontal relationships with others. That if we are not loving our neighbor, then there is something wrong with our relationship with God. I will say that again. If we are not loving our neighbor, there is something wrong with our relationship with God. Because love for God and love for neighbor cannot be separated. The Apostle John reiterated Jesus' command, emphasizing the fact that where there is genuine love for God, there will be genuine love for neighbor. Listen to what he wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So love comes from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. They're a Christian. They've been rescued by Jesus Christ. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And John says they know God. But now listen to what he says in verse number 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And so Jesus said, you can't separate your love for God from your love for neighbor. And John, the beloved disciple, says the same thing. You cannot separate your love for God from your love for neighbor. And it is obvious from both John and Jesus' instructions, that the love of God does not and cannot reign in us without creating a love for our neighbor. That when the love of God is deposited into our hearts and our souls, it should create inside of us a love for people. I'll say it to you this way this morning. It is impossible to love God without loving people. And so when you say, oh, I love God, I just don't like the church, that is not a true statement, friends. When you say you don't like the church, do you know what you're saying? You don't love God. And you can rationalize it, and you can justify your low view of the church, the very thing and people that Jesus Christ gave his life for and died on the cross. You can justify yourself in that, but your stance will not hold up to the Word of God. You know that you love God because you love people. And Jesus gives these commands to the Pharisees because the Pharisees had no genuine love for God. Oh, they loved rules, they loved regulations. 
They loved power and authority, but they did not love God. And not only did they not love God, they did not love their neighbors, both Jews and Gentiles. And to prove his point in just a few verses, Jesus will remind the multitudes how the scribes and the Pharisees deal with their horizontal relationships with people. And in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4, Jesus will say this about how they relate to other people. He will say they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They burden other people. They don't love them. And the Apostle John, he goes on in his writings, and he makes it clear that Jesus' command to love our neighbor is not merely a sentimental love. It is not an emotional love. John teaches us that true love for our neighbors is purposeful. It is intentional. And it is an active choice in our lives. Listen carefully to his description of this love in 1 John chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. And listen to how he begins. Because every time John writes about loving our neighbor, he first begins by talking about our love for God and what God has done for us through his son Jesus. And he connects our love for God with our love for people, for neighbors. He never separates the two. So 1 John 3, verses 14 to 18. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Do you hear that? Translation, you know you're a Christian because you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you should question whether or not you're really a Christian. That's the translation of that verse. And he goes on, whoever does not love abides in death. And what he's saying is, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you've not been changed. You're still dead in your trespasses and sins. You're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself. Verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Do you hear it again? Everyone who hates his brother or sister in Christ. John says is a murderer. And a murderer doesn't have eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. How do you know that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? John says you know your you love your brothers and sisters in Christ because you're willing to lay down your life for them just as Jesus willingly laid down his life for you. Love of God, love of neighbor. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Do you see, friends? Over and over and over in Scripture. Love for God translates into love for neighbor. And if you don't love your neighbor, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you cannot say that you love God. You're wrong. Scripture will not allow you to say that. Now, I want you to notice in the text again, in verse 39, how Jesus says we are to love our neighbors. We should love our neighbors, look at what he says, as we love ourselves. 
Now, Jesus is not commanding us to love ourselves. He is assuming that we already do. And his assumption would be correct, wouldn't it? Don't you love yourself? You say, Pastor, you have lost your mind. Really? Have I lost my mind? Did you maybe stare in front of the mirror just a little bit longer this morning just to make sure everything was in place and looked right? I did. I wasn't sure I matched, and so I, I checked it a couple different times to make sure before I left the house. No, we love ourselves. How do we know we love ourselves? We feed ourselves. We bathe ourselves. We dress ourselves. We take care of ourselves. We do things that we love to do for ourselves. And Jesus says, you should love your neighbor. You should love your brothers and sisters in Christ the way you love you. Because all of us love us. And if you say this morning you don't love yourself, you are deceiving yourself. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked, and it has you fooled. You absolutely love yourself. That's why you're so selfish. Right? That's why I'm so selfish. And Jesus doesn't just say that we love ourselves. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesian believers concerning marriage, do you know what he said to husbands? He says that husbands are to love their wives the way they love themselves. Now, Jesus said you love yourself, and Paul said you love yourself, and your pastor has said that you love yourself. Are you going to believe it? We love ourselves. Listen to Paul's language. Ephesians 5, 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And the point of all of this is just as we look out for ourselves, just as we take care of ourselves and our own welfare, if we truly love our neighbor, if we truly love other people, we will look out for them in the same way that we look out for ourselves. J.C. Ryle, in his expository thoughts on the Gospel of Matthew, summarizes what Jesus and John are teaching us. And this is what he wrote. Love is the grand secret of right behavior towards our fellow men. He who loves his neighbor will scorn to do him any willful injury, either in person, property, or character. But he will not rest there. Do you hear that? It's not just that he doesn't do evil to him. He says he will desire in every way to do him good. He will strive to promote his comfort and happiness in every way. He will endeavor to lighten his sorrows and increase his joys. When a man loves us, we feel confidence in him. We know that he will never intentionally do us harm and that in every time of need, he will be our friend. It's not just that you don't do evil to him. It's that you do good to him. That's what it means to really love your neighbor. And notice what Jesus says in verse 40. He summarizes his answer to the lawyer saying, On these two commandments, loving God and loving your neighbor, depend all the law and all the prophets. And the word depend that he uses there, it literally means to hang, as in hanging a necklace around your neck or hanging an ornament on a tree. It means that everything the law says about our duty to our neighbor serves love and explains love. Jesus says, if you want to know what love looks like, go to the law. 
and everything that the law says about your responsibility to your neighbor, that's love. This is what love looks like. And everything that the prophets proclaimed is essentially expositions of loving God and loving your neighbor. And so with this statement, Jesus is summarizing the Old Testament. And he's summarizing the first four commandments of the ten, loving God, and the last six, loving your neighbor. And he summarizes it all. And he says all of the Old Testament is about loving God and about loving your neighbor. The Apostle Paul He picked up where Jesus left off and he made it clear that everything in the Old Testament that God required as well as everything in the New Testament that God required hung on these two commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. And this is what he said to the Romans in Romans 13 verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Did you hear that? The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Here's my summary of it all. With these two commands. Jesus is saying that there is not a relationship in our life, both horizontal and vertical, that is not affected by loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And he's teaching us, friends, that loving people should be a priority in the life of a Christian. And so I ask you this morning, is loving others a priority in your life? Is your love for God translated into your relationships? And I would ask you this morning, is it translated into your relationships beginning with your most closest and nearest relationships? That of your spouse, that of your children, those who live in your immediate sphere under your roof. Because if you truly love God, your love for God should be greatly exhibited in your love for your spouse and your children and those who reside under your roof. Like there is a disconnect in your life if you come to church and you sing praises to God and you talk to everyone here about how much you love God and then you go home and your spouse and your children feel like they're living with a different person than the one they just went to church with. Like how can you reconcile that? It's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it's hypocrisy. And the Bible doesn't support it. I've shown you. You can't tell me that you genuinely love God when you genuinely don't love the people in your immediate sphere. And then I'll ask you to consider your relationships outside of your home. 
I'll ask you to consider your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll ask you to consider your relationships with your extended family. And friends, if we're honest this morning, if we're honest under the word of God, in the authority of the word of God, we make excuses over and over again for the broken relationships in our lives with extended families and within the church family. We want everyone to extend grace to us, and we don't want to extend grace to anyone. We think we're always right. We think we're always justified. We make excuses and we pass it off and act like it's all okay. And I'm asking you this morning, as your pastor, who is also under the authority of the Word of God, do you really think your life and your relationships and your excuses hold up to the authority of the Word and what we've just seen? That you can justify broken marriage, You can justify broken family relationships. You can justify broken relationships in the church. Holding to your rights. Under this text. And I would say to you this morning. That if you're truly a Christian. And if you truly love God. How can you? How can you? How can you justify your sin? It's a priority. It's a choice to be purposeful. It is a choice to be intentional. It is a choice to be active. It is a choice to say, I'm sorry. It is a choice to say, I forgive. It is a choice. And you justify it. It's why there's no victory. It's why there's no victory in your home. It's why there's no victory in your family. It's why there's no victory within the church and in your relationships. Because you're content to stay in your sin and justify it. It's a priority. Now, turn with me to John 13. Let me move from the priority of loving people to the principle of loving people. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus fleshes out what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 34 of John 13, he gives the principle of loving people. And this is what he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, when Jesus spoke these words, Judas, the false disciple, had just left the upper room where he had been feasting with Jesus and the disciples. And after his departure, Jesus reminded his disciples that he was going to be glorified and that he was going to be leaving and that where he was going, they would not be able to. To follow him. And immediately after that sad announcement that he would leave them soon, he gave this commandment in John 13 34. And Jesus was saying, I am going, but you will still be here. 
and you're going to need each other. So make sure, brothers, that you love one another. And he says, this is a new commandment that I'm giving to you. It's not a worn out commandment. It's new in experience. It's fresh. And Jesus' commandment was new, not because it had never been given before, but it was new because it presented a higher standard of love. A standard of love that was based on the love of Christ himself. And what Jesus was teaching his disciples in the upper room, and what he's teaching you and me is that this commandment to love one another was to occupy a higher position and a higher place of honor and a higher place of practice in our lives. It was to be a priority for us. I quote J.C. Ryle again. Of all the commands of our master, there is none which is so much talked about and so little obeyed as this. Well, we talk about it, but we don't obey it. He says, and yet if we mean anything when we profess to have charity and love toward all men, it ought to be seen in our tempers and our words, our bearing and our doing, our behavior at home and abroad, our conduct in every relationship of life. Especially it ought to show itself forth in all our dealings with other Christians. We should regard them as brothers and sisters and delight to do anything to promote their happiness. We should abhor the idea of envy and malice and jealousy towards a member of Christ. And regard it as a downright sin. Did you hear that? He's calling it the same thing I'm calling it. The same thing that the Bible calls it. Sin. And this is what our Lord meant, he says, when he told us to love one another. In his book, The Mark of the Christian, Francis Schaeffer listed two practical ways that Christians can manifest and show love for one another. And friends, they're simple. I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't know. Here's the first thing he said. Be willing to apologize and seek forgiveness from those you've wronged. Be willing to say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And I'm telling you, husbands, your wife would have to go and redo her makeup if some of you would look at her and say with genuine love and affection that you're sorry and you want her to forgive you. No, you act like she knows it. You need to ask it and say it. It'll change your home. It'll change your marriage. And some wives may need to do the same to their husbands. I mean, I get all over the men all the time. But it does work both ways, ladies. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to say that you were wrong. So that's the first thing. Here's the second thing he says. Grant forgiveness. In light of the eternal forgiveness that comes through the cross, be eager to forgive. Be eager to forgive. And friends, how many times do we forget this? 
It's why the writer of Hebrews issues this powerful warning in Hebrews chapter 12 where he talks about running the Christian race and looking to the great hall and heroes of the faith of Hebrews 11 and running with endurance like the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, while you're running, make sure no root of bitterness springs up inside of you by which many have become defiled. And why would he say that? Because he knows the power of forgiveness and he knows how often we forget it and how often we hold to our rights and how often we hold to our hurt and our pain and our justification. And the longer we hold that stuff inside, listen to what Hebrews is telling you, friends. It creates bitterness in your life. And that bitterness becomes a root inside of you. And that root takes hold of you and then everything comes out of you through bitterness. That's why Jesus said that everything comes out of your mouth originates in your heart. And so if you wonder why you're so harsh with people, if you wonder why you're so harsh towards people that you've not forgiven, it's because you've got bitterness inside of you towards them. And it's springing up and it's defiling you. And you're justifying it. And saying it's okay. So we ask for forgiveness and we grant forgiveness. And this is free. This isn't in my notes this morning. It's free. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, we've studied it before. He says that if you've been truly forgiven by God, you'll forgive. And the reason that you're having trouble forgiving, it might just be because you've never been forgiven. And again, you say to me, oh, pastor, you're just being so hard about this. That, that just sounds really harsh. And do you know what I say to you, friend, with all of the love and sincerity in my heart as your pastor, you're making another excuse. You are trying to justify yourself before the word of God. And the word of God is confronting you. And you're willing to stay right where you are and keep your excuses. So I ask you this morning, does your life reflect this principle of love? As Francis Schaeffer observed, we keep this command by seeking forgiveness and extending forgiveness. And I wonder this morning if there's someone that you need to forgive. I wonder this morning if there's someone that you need to seek forgiveness. I bet you, just as I rattled off these questions... Names came into some people's minds. Pictures of people came up. And what that might mean in a very practical way this morning is that as soon as this service is over, you need to get on your phone and make a phone call. You may need to go to somebody's house. As soon as this service is over, you may need to go to somebody else in this room and get right. It's a priority. It's a principle. Number three, John 13, 34, there's a pattern. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. And what Jesus is telling us is that his example of love sets the standard for us to follow. It's the standard that we're to follow in our love of other people. Paul described Christ's love this way in 1 Corinthians 13, 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That's love. That's Christ's love. It's patient. It's kind. It's gentle. It's rejoicing. It's forgiving. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. And listen, I'm trying to be as practical as I can this morning. There's some of us that need to take our Bible and we need to turn it to 1 Corinthians 13 and we need to get on our knees and we need to say something like this to God. God, I am so impatient with my spouse. I am so impatient with my kids. I have no patience. I get irritated quickly. I need you to change me. I need you to give me your patience. You say that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the work of your Spirit in my life. And I'm confessing to you, God, I don't have it. And I need it. Or you can just go on like a wrecking ball and blow it all up. And justify yourself for it. You know how Christ loved? He loved selflessly. He humbled himself. You know how he loved? Sacrificially. He died. You know how he loved? In a sanctifying way. He prayed that his followers would be sanctified in the truth. And how, how you know you're really loving your wife and your kids, how you know you're really loving your family, how you know you're really loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, they are thriving in their relationship with God because of your love. Like they're looking more like Jesus by the way you love them. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus did. And he loved spirit-filled and spirit-directed. He was controlled by the Spirit of God. And listen to me, friends. Jesus would not give these commands if he didn't also give us the ability to obey them. He never commands us to do something that he does not give us the ability to do. And what I want to say to you this morning clearly and unapologetically, is that the only way you will be able to love like this is if you have first experienced the love of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says through the prophet Ezekiel that apart from Christ, all of us have hearts of stone. That we're hard, we're cold, and we're callous. And that's why we need the gospel, and that's why we need Jesus. And that's why God sent his son to this earth to live a life of perfection that you and I could never live. To live a life of love that you and I could never perfectly live. And to die on the cross, a death that he did not deserve. A death that should have been mine. A death that should have been yours. And that he died on that cross for our sins, all of them, past, present, and future. And then he was put in a tomb and he rose from the grave signaling that he has defeated sin, death, hell, and the devil. And he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father praying for his children this very moment. And Jesus did all of that 
so that when we recognize our sin and we turn from it and we trust in Christ and what he did on the cross, the Holy Spirit of God comes inside of us at that moment of salvation and he comes to live inside of us and the very first thing he does is take that old, cold heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh so that you can start loving And he doesn't just do that. He takes the love of God. The Holy Spirit takes the love of God, as Romans 5.5 says, and deposits it in your heart so that you can then love. Are you listening? You can then love, not out of your love, out of God's love. And that's how you feel this command. And you'll never feel it apart from the love of God. And you'll never feel it apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion will not help you love like this. All religion will do is show you how much you fail. Only Christ will help you love like this. And I know there's people in this room this morning, as sure as I'm standing in front of you, that don't know Christ as their Savior. You've never confessed your sin. You've never trusted personally in what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You've never asked God to forgive you. The Holy Spirit doesn't live inside of you. And my message to you this morning is come to Christ. Friends, this life is short. This world is passing. You see it every day. One day I'm going to give the last sermon I'm ever going to give. And you're going to miss it. If you don't come to Christ. And Christian, I say to you today, does your pattern of love in your relationships reflect the way Christ loves you? Is it selfless? Is it sacrificial? Is it sanctifying? Is it spirit-filled and directed? Well, Jesus teaches us the priority of loving people, the principle of loving people, the pattern for loving people. And he teaches us the purpose of loving people. Look at John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How will the world know that we're Christians? By the love that we have for each other. And in this verse, Jesus is saying that the primary identification of a true disciple is not the truth they believe, the words they say, the songs they sing, or the practices they observe. That the primary identification of a true follower of Jesus Christ is how they love their brothers and sisters. Listen to 1 John 3.10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, you think I've been harsh in this sermon this morning? Did you just catch what John said? You know you're of the devil if you don't love your brothers. That's harsh. But that's what he said. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I'll quote Francis Schaeffer again. He says, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. 
And in the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love to one another. He'll go on to say that the world could actually come in here and judge us and say, you don't love God because you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I ask you this morning, Christian, if an unbeliever had followed you around this past week and observed your life and observed your love, would they have concluded that you're a devoted follower of Jesus Christ? Would your life have given testimony to that? Well, he teaches us the priority of loving people, the principle of loving people, the pattern for loving people, the purpose of loving people. And finally, aren't you glad it's finally? I can see the looks on your faces. You're very glad it's finally. He teaches the practice of loving people. Did you notice John 13 verses 34 and 35? Jesus uses the phrase one another three times in those two verses. And when you study that phrase one another and you put commandments beside it, if you Google it, you're going to come up with approximately 59 one another commands in Scripture. And these are commands that should be observed out of the overflow of our life and our love for God. But they're things that we don't only do for God. They are things that we do for other people. And when you study these 59 commands, there are no exhortations in any of them that qualify them. Saying, if you feel like it, do this. If they're nice to you, do this. If it's convenient, do this. If your personality matches this command, do this. You'll not find any of that associated with these 59 one another commands. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul does something interesting. He uses this phrase, one another or each other, and he uses it to contrast the desires and the works of the flesh with the desires and the works of the Spirit. And he frames it in the context of one another. Here's the proof text for it. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Do you hear it? The desires of the flesh are opposed to the desires of the Spirit. And it's all framed in the one another, and they're opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do and that you ought to do. In other words, he's saying that these two commands that Jesus gives can be grouped under the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit. And you can see the damage that is done when it's the flesh, and you can see the unity and the help that it brings when it's of the spirit. I want you to listen to some of them. I'm almost finished. Listen to the desires of the flesh in the context of one another's. And ask yourself, does this describe me? Lusting after one another, Romans 127. 
judging one another, Romans 14, 13. Depriving one another, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. Biting one another, Galatians 5, 15. Devouring one another, Galatians 5, 15. Destroying one another, Galatians 5, 15. Provoking one another, Galatians 5, 26. Envying one another, Galatians 5, 26. Lying to one another, Colossians 3, 9. Hating one another, Titus 3, 3. Slandering one another, James 4, 11 and James 5, 9. Grumbling against one another, James 5, 9. Desires of the flesh. The one another's of the flesh that destroy relationships, destroy churches, taint testimonies, desires of the flesh. What are the desires of the spirit? Be at peace with one another, Mark 9, 50. Wash one another's feet, John 13, 14. You're members of one another, Romans 12, 5. Be devoted to one another, Romans 12, 10. Honor one another, Romans 12, 10. Live in harmony with one another, Romans 12, 16. Love one another, too many references to give you examples. Edifying one another, Romans 14, 19. Welcoming one another, Romans 15, 7. Instructing one another, Romans 15, 14. Greeting one another, Romans 16, 16, and many other places. Waiting for one another, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. Caring for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25. Agreeing with one another, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Comforting one another, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Serving one another, Galatians 5, 13. Bearing one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2. Bearing with one another, Ephesians 4, 2 and 3. Speak the truth to one another, Ephesians 4.25. Being kind to one another, Ephesians 4.32. Forgiving one another, Ephesians 4.32. Sing to one another, Ephesians 5.19. Submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21. Esteem one another, Philippians 2.3. Teach and admonish one another, Colossians 3.16. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Build up one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Do good to one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. Exhort one another, Hebrews 3.13. Stir up one another, Hebrews 10.24. Confess sins to one another, James 5.16. Pray for one another, James 5.16. Offer hospitality to one another, 1 Peter 4.9. Be humble toward one another, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. Fellowship with one another, 1 John 1.7. That's the word of God. That's what our relationships are supposed to look like. In a church that practices the desires of the sinful nature and the flesh, practices the one another commands in such a way that the church becomes just like the world, and it becomes disunified, and it loses its testimony. And a church that believes the commands, and a church that practices them through the fruit of the Spirit, does it in such a way that the body of Christ is built up, that there's unity in the church, that there's humility in the church, that there's interdependence in the church, and there's diversity in the church. That's how you, friends, that's how you know the church is fulfilling the commands. 
There's not a sense and spirit of arrogance running through the church as if you're a superior Christian over someone else. But there is a sense of humility because you're willing to wash feet. You're willing to prefer one another. You're willing to sing to one another and not just to yourself. You're willing to pray for one another. You're willing to comfort one another. You're willing to care for one another. You're willing to get in the trenches of life with other people. You're willing to believe the best about other people. And it creates a spirit and a sense of humility in your life that bleeds throughout the church. But if you think you're above any of these things, it creates a hubris. And it infects all of the church. And when the church doesn't love these one another commands, it doesn't create diversity in the church. People don't feel welcome. People don't feel loved. People don't feel cared for. That, I mean, I'm just being honest with you this morning. That's why I wonder how you can walk through this building and walk right past people and never speak. Or how you could never stop and take the time to ask a name. And you say, well, pastor, you ask names and then you forget them. Yep, that's right. I ask them all the time and I forget them. I need grace. Forgive me. But I'm asking. I'm trying. I'm trying to memorize all the kids' names and who they go with and pray for them. But we keep having babies and it's never going to get caught up. Do, do, you, do you hear the text, friends? It creates humility. It creates diversity. Listen, it creates interdependence. Some of you live your Christian life like you're the Lone Ranger and you don't need Tonto. Well, I want you to look around. Tontos are all around you. It's the way God designed his church. And it knows nothing of a Lone Ranger mentality. We need one another. And these one another commands, they're not fulfilled through programming, friends. The church can't program this stuff. How does it happen? In a practical way, you know how it happens? It happens through relationships. You take the time to get to know each other. You share life together. You pray for each other. You eat a meal together. You open your home. You ask names. You sit beside different people. You connect with other people. Would you think of this? It's only in the church that we have this kind of mindset that you expect the pastor and all the other leaders of the church to know every single one of your names. And to know everything about you and to keep it all straight. And you all get a pass. You only have to know your immediate little circle. And listen, you're content to stay in it. And so, you don't fulfill the commands. I'll close with Ray Ortland. The kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. The lovely gospel of Jesus positions us to treat one another like royalty. And every non-gospel positions us to treat one another like dirt. And we will follow through horizontally whatever we believe vertically. 
our relationships with one another then are telling us what we really believe as opposed to what we think we believe, our convictions as opposed to our opinions. If we are not treating one another well, then what we're facing is not a lack of niceness. It's a lack of the gospel. Our deficit is not primarily personal but theological. What we need is not only better manners but far more truth. Then the watching world will know that Jesus has truly come among us. It's about the gospel. Is the gospel evident in your relationships? Husbands, is it evident in how you love and treat your wife behind closed doors? Mom and dad, is it evident in how you treat your children? Brother and sister in Christ, is it evident in how you treat your other brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it evident in how you treat the leaders of the church? Is it evident in how you treat your extended family members? Or are you just making excuses to justify your sin? It's interesting when you study this passage in Matthew chapter 22 and you go to the parallel account in the gospel of Mark. Mark concludes this event in the life of Christ differently than Matthew. And Mark records that when Jesus finished, the lawyer looked at him. And he said, Jesus, I'm paraphrasing now. You can look at it in Mark 12, 32 and following if you want. But, but the lawyer looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, you've spoken well. Everything you've said is true. And do you know what Jesus said to him? Listen to what Jesus said to him. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Why did he say that? Do you ever wonder that? You're not far from the kingdom of God. You know why he said he wasn't far from the kingdom of God? I've meditated on this for a little while. He knew all the right answers. He knew the greatest commandment was to love God with all of his heart, his soul, his mind, and his strength. And he knew the second greatest commandment was to love his neighbor as himself. But he wasn't far from the kingdom because he only knew it. He didn't live it. There's a difference. How about you? Are you far from the kingdom today? Or do you know it and by God's grace trying to live it? This world needs the church to follow these two commands. Loving God devotedly with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving people the way we love ourselves. Let's pray. God, we are humbled by your word. Your word is power, and your word is life, and your word is our authority. And we humble ourselves under it today. And we pray, God, that through the power of your spirit, you would take your word and you would bring it to bear in the lives of your people. And we pray today, God, earnestly and plead with you that you would open blind eyes and that you would save those who don't know Christ as their Savior. This very moment, God, would this moment, would this hour, would this day be their day of salvation? Would you save them even now, God? 
And we pray today, God, for those who have broken relationships in their home, for those who have broken relationships in their extended family, for those who have broken relationships in this church, for those who have broken relationships outside of this church, that in the humility of this moment, under the power and the authority of your word, God, that you would convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, and that you would eliminate excuses and you would bring true, genuine reconciliation and love. We believe you can do it, God. And we believe only you can do it. And so we pray to that end. And God, we pray that we would be a church that would love you with everything we have and everything we are. And that we would love one another well so the world would know that we belong to you. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.